Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and I'm delighted that today we have the second in our series of youth activism. And we're welcoming back um, Henry Scott, who was with us last time. So Henry, hello and welcome again. It's great to see you. Hi, Amanda. Nice to be here. And Henry's going to tell us a little bit about how it felt um, during the climate strike and some of the reactions from his fellow students and fill us in on a bit of the details. And we're joined in the studio by David Hunter, who is a legal consultant with Bates Wells. And Bates Wells are the only law firm in the country to have declared a climate emergency. I think that's right, isn't it, David? We believe so, yes. Yes, So that's great. Well, fantastic. And welcome to you. And I'm intrigued because you say that your focus is on um, impact economy. What is the impact economy exactly? The impact economy is um, businesses and investors who are looking to do more than simply maximise the profits uh, in, in, in shorthand. So, so social enterprise, effectively. So it, it, well, it goes beyond social enterprise. So social enterprise is very much, um, you, you might distill it to sort of profit for purpose. So if they make surpluses as they would need to do to be a, a sustainable business, that's that's um, re- recycled back into the business. Oh, okay. Whereas... Um, in the broader impact economy, it's it's less about um, recycling profits in that way, but in making the profits, you're supposed to be taking your other stakeholders' interests into account. So you're making profits not at the expense of your um, your staff or your customers or your supply chain or the environment or the community. You're supposed to be thinking about the impact of all of all, on all of those different stakeholders on the decisions, business decisions that you're making. And if you can do that and still make a profit, then they're marvelous. But um, but it's not just about the, the bottom line. Oh, that's really interesting. So these are businesses that are really businesses with social purpose, but that social purpose goes right across that wider stakeholder group because so often social purpose is very narrowly defined, isn't it? And it's about you know just working for good in one very small sector. So this could be, I guess, a mainstream business that just runs in a social purpose way. Yeah, exactly. So it's not... Um doing some CSR on the side to try and sort of mitigate the, the effects of everything else that a business is doing, but sort of bringing it into the into the business strategy, bring it into the decision-making process. And, and it's, it's what um, the B Corp movement is, uh, is moving towards. So in fact, Bates Wells has become the first law firm to, um, um, to become a B Corp. Uh, and that helped us actually, that was a stepping stone towards being able to feel that we could make the, um, the declaration of the, the climate emergency that we did last month. And for those listeners who might not know what a B Corp is, a B Corp is a what exactly? B Corp is a, um, it's a, a certification. Uh, if you think of fair trade, it's a similar thing to that. So it's an independent certification that a charity called B-Lab UK um, provides to businesses who who pass certain tests in relation to the way they conduct themselves and the way in in terms of how they're governed. So there are about um, 1,200, I believe, in the UK at the moment. It's been going for about four years. Uh, And there's uh, over a, uh, well, over a thousand worldwide. It started in America and is is, is on every continent, I believe, now. Oh, fascinating. And are you one of the few law firms 
that's a B Corp or the, one of the only law firms that's a B Corp? In, in the UK, we're the only one so far. We're aware of about half a dozen others who are um, who, who are sort of in the process of becoming ones, which is great. Um, you know, I think it's uh, the, the you know the the more there are, the better. Um, yeah. And it's uh, you know it is a snowball that's beginning to build. So it's a, you're really leading edge in that sense, aren't you? As a as a what is effectively quite a traditional type of business. I mean, law firms are you know seen I think by many to be quite traditional they've got rather traditional structures they've got partnership structures they are a lot of them focused on you know making money significant amounts of money um, so you are quite an unusual animal as a law firm in that sense yeah we are we are and uh, one of the, the things that we had to I mean we, we I think we would probably have said that this that was part of our culture um, you know, back back down the years but one of the things that's helped with the B Corp is crystallise it around things like having to change the partnership deed, so that um, you know success isn't measured by the, the profits per partner, and it you know it is about looking at our impact on society and the environment and looking at the sort of the whole picture around that, um, and uh, and yeah, and it I think it kind of feeds into as you say it requires a different approach to our clients and and the way we work. And it's the the sort of thing that will, I, I think, be absolutely necessary as we start to, you know, to face the challenges of climate and biodiversity loss and everything else that's uh, coming down the track. So you're really modelling both in your own life in choosing to work for Bates Wells, because I know you were saying earlier that um, before we came on air that actually you'd made a choice to step off the kind of partnership train and, and work in a different way. Um, you're, both you and the firm, are modelling a new way of working, which... I think plays directly into the kind of narrative that that you're talking about at UKSCN, aren't you, at the the Student Climate Network, and the kind of things that you've been saying are part of what's driving you as a movement to call for change, because the strikes are just one part of your agenda, and we're going to talk about how the strikes went and what you felt in a minute. But but it seems to me that David's sort of showing that there is a different way of, of working that is possible. Uh, yeah, I'd have completely have to agree with David, and that's actually one of the main things that I have uh, began to really, really believe in is that uh, we, as a country, as you know, as a business, can be start to become an economic model of how uh, a different system can work. So, for example, if we let's take a look at China for a second, their economic model has supposedly outdone everyone's expectations, and they have reshaped the way economics does work and it and it just it they're an example of how uh you don't have to have the one economy there are multiple ways of running it so for example i recently was speaking at an event um the youth climate takeover in back in early september and i was speaking about a green new deal it's an ambitious group of environmental policies that would rapidly restructure and decarbonize the uk economy um and one of my points was for this being uh, an important Uh, piece of legislation that the government should implement is that if it's successful not only does life quality improve for everyone around Britain but it also acts as an example of how the rest of Europe the world can actually model their economies still be hyper successful and 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 improve slight living standards and living quality for everyone in their country but also not kill the environment at the same time and so your law firm that is really interesting to me because it is it is exactly what a Green New Deal would look like in terms of an example for everyone else to follow by. 
Yeah, but Henry, I mean, we wouldn't hold China up as an example, would we? Because we hold China up as a polluter. I mean, they're just celebrating just this week, the 70th anniversary of communism. You know, and it it is not an empowering economy for for all of its citizens, is it? No. So I I take your point, there's other ways of doing things. But, you know, let's not look at China to model after. Just want to put that out there. (laughs) Okay, just wanted to check that because we'd be in trouble. I want my partners thinking that uh, they're being compared to communism. (laughs) No, 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 no. Communism running rife across the legal sector. I cannot stress that enough. <laughs> but the Green New Deal, I mean, that's what's so fascinating. And really, wanted, we wanted to kind of continue the conversation we'd started last time on the pod because actually, when you start thinking about working in a more environmentally friendly way, when you start thinking about the climate as something other than just loss of habitat, even though that's incredibly important to most of us, what we're actually saying is this is about a paradigm shift on how businesses, people, individuals, communities work, how we live our lives, how we choose to. Um, you know, earn our living and work with other people and the amount of goods or services we choose to buy or not buy. And I think it's an incredible, some would say that's a sort of utopian ambition, wouldn't they? And that, that we, it's fine for, you know, previously very successful, presumably fairly wealthy lawyer, not picking on you, David, but, you know, to be able to say, I can afford to step back now, I can step down, I can step sideways. You know, if you're stuck in a bit of a dead end job in a in a community that's suffering from high levels of social deprivation, you're not going to be able to make those choices. So how do we square that circle and say that actually this isn't just white, middle class, privileged, caring about the planet, wanting to live differently, buying eco products? I mean, how do we make those shifts? Well, I, th- I think, I mean, it's, this is very much a personal view, but I think that, um, that, that because that's all true, the responsibility is on the the white middle class privilege to take the lead. You know, it's it's things have to change, and there have to be. You know, if you if you look at who has been emitting the most carbon over the last twenty years, then you know it's us folks. And I think a lot of what has been happening lately. So there's been advances in terms of um, you know people and organisations acknowledging that climate change is real, but it's almost as if Okay, now we've done that, and we'll and we'll do what we can, whether it's in terms of recycling or perhaps eating a bit less meat or whatever it may be, as long as we don't really have to change the core of what we're what we're doing and don't really have to to give things up. And I, you know, and I think personally, I think absolutely, you know, I mean, I, I think actually where we're getting to is a, a more appealing, um, you know, potentially. A, the, the future you create is a, a much more appealing one if it's, you're talking about sort of, you know, fresh air and clean water and still having the soil that food can grow in and all, all the rest of it than what might be otherwise, you know, facing us in a, in a, in a couple of decades' time. But the sort of the, the, the things that we may have to give up in the meantime, I think, have to, have to start with us, not with, you know, those who have a lot, a lot less to begin with, whether that's, you know, the parts of, of the UK or whether it's, it's overseas. And you know the fact that those who are the most visible are are, are are white, middle class, privileged. That's how it needs to be. Yeah, and I suppose if you just to pick up on your point about you know we've we've done the most damage in some ways. I mean, you just look at flying. You know, they've done some studies recently to say that you know what do people think they can do that will most impact their carbon emissions? And everybody says recycling. And that's only because recycling's right in front of us mm. and councils are getting their act together and giving us new bins. I've now got four outside my house, which is great. Um, but, but actually, it's not flying. So, you know, avoiding one flight to the Mediterranean, one return flight, will, will, will massively reduce your carbon footprint. And you can recycle for every day for the rest of your life and it wouldn't have anything like the same impact. So there are going to be some real sacrifices that people have to make. 
And, you know, how are you going to encourage your peer group, Henry, to do that? Because presumably you're surrounded by lots of young people who are working hard at school, want to go to university, want to get good graduate jobs. And with those come, you know, reasonable graduate salaries and lifestyles. How are you going to persuade those people to change and to not have as much, not to be consumers, not to, to, to benefit from all the things they've seen their parents benefiting from? Well, I mean, that is, the, that is the biggest issue I'm finding with this, is that how do you convince people to have less? You know, we live in a consumerist age, as you said, and, you know, we have a massive want and psychological need for us to gather stuff and just have useless rooms covered in stuff that we can't use. I know we've got that room in my house. It's just filled with stuff that I haven't used in years. Um, but getting people to getting people to give stuff up is obviously quite difficult. And for climate change, as you said, uh, people say, oh, recycling. It, the reason we have taken so long to act upon this and the reason that concrete, we're just at the beginning of actual concrete action is because climate change is very much a psychological issue in that um, humans perceive threats as immediate and stuff, you know, the, the threats that go beyond us, the psychological threats. Um, so, for example, if a bear walked in the room and was going to eat me, I'd probably want to get out of the way. But climate change, I, it's more of a, it's a higher intelligence issue that, you know, we have to begin to process and realise. Um, but getting my peers to sort of uh, start to take action and realise that I can't have seven cars, I can't go and be Bill Gates or, you know, it, it, it's going to be quite difficult, which is why we've actually got one of our demands is to teach the future. We've got a teach the future campaign. And that's something which is we're just beginning and we're just starting out. And I can go through the demands if you like. Yeah, remind us what the demands were, because I think we only really touched on them last time. Okay, we? so UKSCN's demands, the UK Student Climate Network demand, are save the future, teach the future, uh, tell the future and empower the future. Now, one I want to really focus on is teach the future, because uh, I was sitting on the train on the way here and I forgot the phrase about uh, teach a man to fish and he shall eat for a lifetime. Give him a fish and he shall only eat for a day. I thought it was bread. <laughs> but I had to ask my fellow passenger for some help there. But yeah. our Teach the Future campaign is a brand new campaign and we're working with big organisations like NUS and uh, some trade unions as well. And so we've got f uh, five demands for our Teach the Future campaign. A government commission review into the climate emergency learning entitlement. Inclusion of climate emergence and ecological crisis in, in teacher standards, in the teacher standards of code of conduct. Right, okay. A National Climate Emergency Education Act, which would basically reform the uh, curriculum to communicate the severity and, and also de-consumering uh, kids in schools. Because my mum told me, I was like, mum, what was it like in the 80s? She goes, it was glitz and glamour and we didn't care a thing in the world. I mean... And we have big hair. Exactly. And everyone had lots of stuff and they yeah. could have lots of stuff because the climate crisis was like a, a non-entity. Um, and so uh, fourth demand would be a national climate emergency youth voice grant fund. So we'd be having a, an incentive fund to make sure that kids can get up and voice their concerns and, and get out there and be active. And lastly, would it be youth climate endowment fund, which would um, making sure that uh, we fund projects like eco projects in schools and uh, you know, switching over to renewables and just driving a real change. But obviously, it comes back to the man with the fish. It's just about education. Like, we've started up the Teach the Future campaign, which is its own separate entity. 
uh, that works with other groups, and we also started up. We're also starting up a uh, an informational series, a forum series at some universities, um, where we're going to bring in uh, university lecturers and possibly some of their pupils or economists who studied environmental law, and we're going to allow them to have a platform so that people just can come in for free and listen for an hour about some information about um, how an economy can be working, but also being sustainable, just like the Green New Deal. Okay, but I can see some problems with that because, you know, the teachers, you know, we've got a huge pressure on the national curriculum. Uh, teachers will tell you there's not enough hours in the teaching day. The demand for assessment, continuous assessment and reporting and all of those things. Suddenly saying, look, we're going to pilot, you know, suddenly a lot more stuff into the curriculum and, and make teachers, you know, teach more things on top of the things they have to teach and encourage kids to learn different things. I mean, I think you're going to need a revolution in the way that we run our education system, aren't we, to actually allow young people to learn about things they really need to learn about. So these are quite ambitious demands, and presumably they're demands of the government as well. So how do you respond to the um, possibly unfair accusation that you might be being just a bit naive and idealistic here? Well, I mean, admittedly, I can imagine that some of those demands go quite far. Um, and it's really important that you do ask for the moon in the hopes that you get the sky. Because if you don't ask for anything, well, you're going to get nothing, aren't you? So um, just thinking about um, schools in general and curriculum, let's take a look at Finland, best education system in the world. Uh, and it's completely different to the UK system. Very small country, though, Henry. I mean, it's only I must got agree. five million inhabitants or something. Yes. And it has a very different social structure and economic structure, doesn't it, with very high taxes. So we're not comparing like with like here, no, are we? No, I, I can agree with that. So we, we're not necessarily saying that, oh, we can be exactly like Finland, but we can look at really successful models of education, just like supposedly a Green New Deal Britain would be supposedly really successful. And we can take um, examples of what works. It's like I was watching uh, a bit of Parliament uh, TV the other day and then I watched a, a bit of the news and there was just a, a, a little video of uh, David Cameron's best bits and he says, we love to take Labour policies as long as we think they're good. And it's about, you know, unfortunately, stealing what you think is good and making it your own. And based on what works, Finland's system is the best in the world. So we can take, you know, certain things like uh, reducing school hours, um, homework, giving the child more responsibility, stuff like that. And it's really important that uh, we, we look at an, a completely new educational reform because currently most children, most people in my year group uh, have some sort of mental illness. And I guarantee you, if you ask most children today, they will know someone or through a friend, a, per a child who has committed suicide. So maybe this focus on the climate and the, you know, the, the, the problems that we're facing is actually just creating more eco-anxiety. So what we're doing is we're storing up more problems for our young people. And, and you know, we may be making things worse rather than better. Well, I th I, well that, that's possibly true, but uh, well, we're, we're making things worse for them anyway. So I don't think the answer is not to talk about it. I think the answer is to, you know, to try and, try and alleviate that. And I, I think, you know, every, every time I hear... Uh, any of the, the the representatives of the the, the school strikes um, talking, and then hear a repost from a headmaster or a politician. I mean, I just know who I, I place more faith in <laughs> you know, in terms of the future. Um, but how do we convince your peer group and your colleagues in the more corporate, um, financially focused, business focused environments? I mean, what do we do? Because you know, I mean, I would say I would agree with most of what Henry says, with some exceptions, um, and you know. We're quite passionate about this, but how do we get through to, to the suits? 
who are making the decisions, whether they're politicians or whether they're whether they're businesses. Well, I think one way to them is is via their own children, and in some cases, grandchildren. You know, I think, think perhaps they they can tap into you know to to get under the skin in a way that that maybe we've spent decades learning how to resist. You know, in 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 our current sort of system. So that's that's one approach. I also think accepting that um, business as usual is a, is a road to nowhere. I think is a really important sort of headline to, to, to keep in, in, in mind because you were talking earlier on about paradigm shift and that's absolutely what's required but sort of not none of us have really been through that. You know, odd things have changed, you know, quite a lot of things have changed over the course of, of certainly my lifetime but nothing as fundamental as this. And there's a, you know, there's definitely a sense of... Um, Certainly, among the people I talk to, a, a sort of on on one level, um, an empathy and a, as a sense of yes, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I sort of I sort of agree, but then a sense of but I still need to meet my targets. I still need to get my bonus. I still need to have my three holidays a year and, and whatever it whatever it is. So you know, I, I think it's either there's. There's, you know, the sort of so. So what? At the moment, I, 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 my sense is is that when we look at the city of London, there's a whole range of regulations and initiatives that are, are coming out there because you know the pension funds and the insurance companies get it. They can mm. see where it's all heading, mm. and you know what it, where it's heading is they're out of business because you know sort of there's 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 nothing to to invest in um, businesses. You know, again, if you have a sort of a quiet conversation with many people in business, they sort of get it, but are still tied into the the sort of the cycle of, you know, short term results and reporting and and all the rest of it. But if we can get, so you know, we're having the business roundtable in the states saying we need to have more purpose in, in involved in our business decisions. You know, we're having the city sort of increasing the sort of the non non financial um, reporting. If we get it, we're getting more people out on the streets, whether it's the you know the, the youth strikers or, or Extinction Rebellion. So, if all of those are contributing to building up this this momentum for for change, and you know Green New Deal is a good example of it. But finally, the politicians, you know, they they will respond to those pressures. You know, they they tend to want to say what they think people want to hear. So, if they're hearing from all of those critical. Um, you know, sort of sectors. Listen, we we want to do this. You know, I, I suspect if a law came in next year saying, right, everybody's entitled to one short haul flight and one long haul flight. You know, sort of every three years or something, there'd be lots of complaining about it, and obviously the airline industry wouldn't look too good. But actually, probably most people would, if that was the way it was, you'd, you'd suck it up. And it's. Do you think we need um, both carrot and stick, though? Because I mean, what we have is huge enthusiasm from young people on the streets and I know that you've you know the, the strikes were successful but in some ways they weren't quite as successful as you hoped perhaps in the UK though globally I think they were very significant so we need both a combination of that occupation of the streets and getting the conversations out there but legislation and policy as well and those sound quite draconian I mean you, you know they're a bit more than just charging people 5p for a plastic bag aren't they actually saying we are not going to allow you to travel we are not going to allow you to to, to pollute it's, a, it's about creating level playing fields. 
and and our, our sort of recent history has been oh you know regulating is bad everything has to be sort of left to the market but actually you know we, we know it's not going to happen you know it's not in the market's interest to think about what's what's it's not going to work for planet, be in 20 years time no so you know you have to take responsibility and a lot of the leaders business leaders and you know people in the city of london are saying look you know if we, if we could do this you know if you change the rules of the game we'll work within the rules of the game um, but if you don't then we're just going to carry on doing what we've been doing because that's you know that's what we're sort of set up to do so you know there's a lot we're doing a lot of stuff at the moment looking at things like the, you know what fiduciary duty really means if you're a pension trustee or if you're the trustee of a, a charitable foundation looking at what directors duties might be beyond simply making um, you know making the most returns for for the shareholder and things like that can start to shift the dial and, and give more flexibility for, for you know for some of these big organizations that really can you know have a lot of leverage and and, and make significant change and make it you know easier for you know the fact is if you if you suddenly find that you know you, you maybe don't have so many opportunities to fly you may discover they're actually parts of this country just 50 miles away they're absolutely gorgeous that you would have you know not thought about or you could take a train most yeah, absolutely i mean one of the things we're talking about at, at base wells is actually giving people extra days holiday if they commit not to fly so they've got the time to get to to these places yeah brilliant scheme i know it's a charity dedicated 1010 who are doing just that you know yeah. their climate perk scheme so henry that sounds as if job's done you know going out on the streets you've got a result we've got paradigm shift happening in the city you know, is there still a need to strike? What's the what's the next step for the student strike movement? And do you feel that it's been as successful as you wanted it to be? I won't lie to you. We, I was uh, with some friends after we had uh, vacated Lambeth Bridge, which we had taken on the strike. It was oh. it was very. You weren't inten- arrested, though, were you? No, but uh, there were I think twenty five arrests. Yeah, which is more than we were sort of hoping there would be and also there was uh, I think there was three police kettles which is a tactic unfortunately deemed lawful by uh, the European Union and the European Commission um, which is a tactic where people the police box you in yeah. and people can't get out and uh, there were some people who had asthma attacks it's not the best way to curb a protest but it is the method they chose and unfortunately it was effective um, but yeah well, no, we were, were semi disappointed I was filming uh, somebody at the time and somebody yells out Oh my goodness, four million. And we were going, what? Four million? Wow. Um, and then it says, no, uh, no, four million in Europe. And we're like, oh, goodness, that was terrible. Um, and seven million worldwide. So I have to admit, I was slightly disappointed, but I was also very, very proud. Although we didn't get the numbers we wanted, it was the largest UK climate mobilisation ever. 350,000 in the UK and 100,000 in London. That is amazing. Mm. We were all so proud of ourselves. Well, you have reason to be proud. And I think what was interesting is it you may not have had numbers as in bodies on the street, but you had lots and lots of strikes across the country, didn't you? Even, yes. you know, my local small town, they, they were out on the bridge, you know. Interestingly, after the end of the school day. But anyway, maybe that's to get around the safeguarding <laughs> issue. I don't know. But they were there, and that's the point. And they had their pictures in the local paper, and so people reading it would say... So I think it's building that momentum, isn't it? So so it's, it's, I'm encouraged to hear that from a corporate perspective, you think that actually some of the actions that, that Henry and his colleagues have taken has influenced some of the behaviours in, Absol- in the city and beyond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and and their peers as well. My my fifteen year old niece was out on on, on that Friday for the, for the first time, and you know you could see a sort of growing awakening of, of you know what what the issues are and, and what it means. And you know I, I would really urge you not to 
try not to be disappointed and you know it's a it's a, it's a very long game and you need to mm. look after yourselves and um, you know keep plugging away and there'll be some days that are better than others but you know I think it's usually important that you you know you keep on speaking up and and don't let it be something else that sort of you know the the prevailing system just sort of managed to to sort of ride o- ride over and then mm. business as usual continues yeah, and I think the strikes are interesting, aren't they? Because it was a beautiful day and Severin was out and it was very jolly and there were, you know, lots of parents with kids and some businesses went and some lawyers went and some professionals went. And that that's just one day. I mean, the reaction to the planned, you know, Extinction Rebellion um, occupation, which happens sort of, you know, 7th of October onwards, will probably be very different because that's actually much, much more disruptive, isn't it, in terms of preventing people from getting to, or allegedly preventing people from getting to work on time and occupying bits of, you know, main thoroughfares like Oxford Street and things. Do you think there's going to be a different reaction to that amongst some of your more kind of, you know, conservative corporate colleagues? I'm sure there will. But but again, I think part of it is opening up the conversation. You know, if, if you through that because a lot of this stuff for a long time wasn't talked about at all at work and actually since we went through the process of deciding whether or not to make a you know a climate declaration I've been really surprised that some people have just quietly come up and said I'm so pleased we can talk about this now Mm. and I think for some of those who aren't there and who may see it as an easy opportunity to say well just look at the the you know the disruption they're causing and the inconvenience and the cost again it's like well, it is an opportunity to start widening the, you know, the perspective and say, but yeah, we're, let's not just talk about today or this week. You know, we're thinking about something that's going to impact in 10, 20, 30 years. And that's going to be inconvenience and disruption on, a, on an unimaginable scale. So, and we're the last ones who can do something about it. So Absolutely. what's more important? And, you know, they may, that doesn't mean they'll agree either, but at least there's an engagement. And again, it's just part of the... You know, it's a, a sort of a natural part of the dialogue that's taking place, which it, it, you know, before the Extinction Rebellion and the IPCC report last year wasn't really there. I don't think. No, it was very much concentrated in those of us who've been kicking around the environment movement yes. forever. What's well, just looping back to that comment I made earlier um, when we were talking about you know white middle class privilege. Um, actually, if we look at climate in terms of justice and the climate justice issues, the people who were most uh, negatively be affected by climate change who, who suffer the most um, are people who are in positions of, of deprivation already um, both in you know other parts of the world but also in, 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 in the UK so disproportionately it's it's the poor and very often women who suffer the negative impacts of climate change to do yeah. with you know more expensive things to buy in the shops more expensive food you know weather effects all of those things and mass migration of course which will happen when 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 you know there's significant climate change impacts really kick in and people have to leave low-lying areas because they're underwater what next henry i mean we're going to have to wrap up soon but what what what's the ambition now and what should we be doing now we've had you know this successful you know I think still that's pretty successful, four million worldwide. I think you should be proud of yourself. If I had a successful strike day, what's next? Well, 
For October, we are planning a day of action. We're not encouraging people to strike as we feel that we need some time to restructure our organisation, to have a bit of an identity crisis of our own <laughs> or a midlife crisis or something like that and just uh, reflect back on what went well, what can go better next time. But uh, what we want to do is we want to start obviously with our educational programme. We want to go into schools. We want to be sending all of our members all over the UK uh, into schools and, and educating people. It's like, okay... I, I've told you that you, you might die in the next 100 years if you don't act, but here's what you can be doing as well. So we've got a, a part of our education program will be to teach people, you know, uh, what uh, Hattie and a brilliant environmental lawyer said was striking plus. So obviously flying less, uh, taking the train more. And, you know, can I just say to all the listeners that a train trip is very enjoyable. You get a couple of hours to chill out, maybe watch a film or read a book. It's quite relaxing. Um, aside from that... Um, we're also going to be lobbying businesses to take greater responsibility. So, for example, David's uh, law firm as a B Corp. That is really inspiring. I hadn't heard about that until today. Um, and obviously, if you, if you can be a successful example of how a law firm or any corporation can uh, not only make a profit, but also uh, act sustainably and be more reflective of the living standard and it's to its clients and everything, that is going to start a nice ripple effect that will hopefully encourage thousands of business in London thousands of businesses in London and across the UK to take uh, example of that and do it themselves. Um, and also, it's all about, in, you know, from our ripple effect, you're right, it is about the long game. If we can play the long game uh, and begin to take these preventative measures, even though we are in a climate crisis, we can stop it from being as severe as it would be with no action at all. So I think what I'm hearing from you is that although your peer group still got to be more engaged not as engaged as they need to be there are ways they can be and the positive suggestions you're putting forward are actually going to help to mitigate that eco-anxiety that we've been talking about and that if you give if you empower young people to take action over them their own lives and the world that they live in that can offset some of those negative feelings can't it and i'm very practical getting in there and talking to your peer group getting to, you know going in to talk to younger young people and, and kids in schools is really powerful because, you know, they're probably more likely to listen to you than they are, you know, someone who's a bit longer in the tooth like, like the two of us. <laughs> so, and what would be your kind of call for action from, from a corporate perspective, David? I mean, we've heard about what the students want, but... I think it really is. I mean, what, what, what we've done is, first of all, to acknowledge the emergency, you know, to, the, the tell the truth piece, I think, is, is really important. And to, you know, and to rem not just say it and move on but to sort of sit with it and to understand what that means and then you know to understand it is as i said before it's such a big shift you know it's not something i think we you know we're we're sort of trained to be very certain and assertive and you know try and sort of make clients feel we're sort of almost omniscient but we don't know what we're we're doing here it's a sort of a learning journey for all of us so we have to be prepared to be vulnerable basically but understand why we're doing that and um, you know and sort of to embrace it to to learn from one another to support one another and to take those those steps which I think you know will ultimately come to it hopefully come to a tipping point it'll be quite significant but may feel a bit alien for a while and you know may may mean some of our our, our colleagues sort of look at us slightly askance but um this is quite scary territory, isn't it? But then it we're living quite frightening times. Yeah. So, so the idea that we're able to embrace some of that and understand it and hopefully support one another to, to, to make the changes that we need 
you know, I think it's encouraging. So I'm hugely encouraged by our conversation. Yeah, Henry, parting um, parting thought. Just parting thought. Um, not obviously directing at you two or our uh, listeners because they're obviously very engaged in the issue, but um, it's really time for like the adults to have been telling us children we need to be in school uh, to be the mature adults that they say they are and actually step up to the mark and be responsible. And that's just something which I've been ticking around in my head uh, just in terms of privileges and extending the franchise to 16 year olds. It's, you know, if you really want to be an adult, be the responsible adult you are and just, you can change. You're just unwilling to because it's gonna cost a bit of extra money. You know, be responsible, be a role model for us or it'll all go wrong. (laughs) That's a brilliant challenge. Thank you. A huge thank you to my guest, Henry Scott from the UK Student Climate Network. Gosh, that's a mouthful. Um, And to David Hunter from Bates Wells. Thank you for for being on the pod and thank you for a fascinating conversation and for issuing those challenges to our listeners, which I know pod listeners will respond to because they're an engaged and thoughtful lot. So my thanks to you and we'll just keep us posted. We'll keep an eye on what's going on and come back to you and get some more feedback. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.